Shalom. We are so glad you're joining us on this episode of Our Hope. We created this podcast as a resource for followers of Yeshua, where they can learn more about Israel, the Bible, and the Jewish community. Together, we discuss Messianic apologetics, dive into Scripture, and hear stories from Jewish believers in Jesus. If you've enjoyed our podcast series, please consider supporting us at ourhopepodcast.com support. You could also help us by sharing this podcast on social media, talking about it with your friends and family, or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so grateful for you, and we hope this episode of Our Hope is both enlightening and encouraging. Welcome to Our Hope, a production of Chosen People Ministries. On this podcast, you will hear inspiring testimonies, learn about messianic apologetics, and discover God's plan for Israel and you. Wherever you're listening, we hope you lean in, listen closely, and be blessed. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. This is one of many prophecies about the Messiah in the Tanakh, or the Old Testament. When we think about the question, did Jesus fulfill the messianic prophecies, we would first need to understand what these prophecies reveal about the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9 is one prophecy that has stirred a deep longing for a perfect king who would bring about the promised age of world peace and justice. One thing both Jewish people and believers in Jesus would agree on is that the Messiah is to fulfill such a glorious role. His kingdom will be perfect without any injustice or suffering. However, one of the main objections to Yeshua fulfilling this messianic prophecy is that, though he came 2,000 years ago, there is still no peace in this world. But there are many other prophecies in the Tanakh, and today we will attempt to understand them in relation to who this Messiah is. Is it Yeshua, or are we waiting for a different Messiah? Joining us today for this discussion is Chosen People Ministries staff member, Robert Walter. I now introduce the host of Our Hope Podcast, Abe Vasquez. Robert, I have a bone to pick with you. Okay, Abe. Hello, by the way. Oh, hello. <laughs> I forgot we're supposed to start with hellos. Well, Robert, you were one of our first guests on Our Hope podcast. And now it seems you went off and started your own radio program. So you're on over 100 stations across the U.S. And uh, you're co-hosting with Dr. Mitch Glazer. Where's the loyalty, man? You know, there comes a time in a person's life where they just have <laughs> to sort of 
dive out of the nest and begin <laughs> flapping their wings, Abe. I, I mean, see how it is. you know, don't take it personal. <laughs> you're my friend. You know, you're my coworker. I love you. You're my brother and Messiah. But uh, you know, it is what it is. Well, well, thanks, thanks, man. <laughs> No, but in all seriousness, I I, I think uh, this radio broadcast that we're doing is is really awesome. It's called The Chosen People, um, co-hosted by uh, Dr. Mitch Glazer and Robert Walter. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the topics you you all cover and um, some of the guests that we have on that? Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's been a great experience so far. We've uh, we've uh, been on the air for just over a month now, uh, and it's been a learning experience. And we've yeah. talked about some really exciting stuff, um, like messianic prophecy, which yeah. I believe we're going to be discussing today, as Nicole mentioned. And uh, we've had some great guests. We've uh, we've had Dr. Michael Rydelnik mm-hmm. um, uh, from Open Line Radio join us, uh, and uh, we've got some some more guests lined up in in the uh, next coming months that I'm pretty excited about as well. Awesome. Well, congratulations. Don't forget about us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> diving into today's topic, uh, this question of did Jesus fulfill the messianic prophecies? I, I think it's a pretty big one. There are lots of messianic prophecies throughout scripture, and there are many interpretations of it, depending on who you ask. And we we know that these prophecies point to Jesus, mm-hmm. but there are many who who just don't believe that and struggle with, with that. So we're hoping that um, in the short time that we have on this podcast, that we can answer that question, did Jesus really fulfill these messianic prophecies? So one of the first prophecies, and I think this is the obvious and most popular one, is Isaiah 53, mm. this, this chapter in the book of Isaiah. Many Jewish people claim that this prophecy is about Israel and not the Messiah. Robert, can you unpack why they believe this? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a pretty important one um, and a common objection. And I think part of the reason is uh, because when you read that chapter, and you know, we always say Isaiah 53, but really it goes from Isaiah 52, 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. And it's a, an amazing prophecy because it clearly lays out the uh, suffering, the humble beginnings, the death, the burial, the resurrection of one innocent, blameless human being, one man who goes through all of this suffering and lays down his life and actually dies for a purpose to mm. pay for the crimes, sins, and transgressions of what's called the many. So many mm-hmm. other people, uh, including Israel and the nations as well. So it's, you know, there's a global impact that the death of this servant of God uh, has, according to Isaiah 53. So many, many Jewish people over the years uh, have come to faith in Jesus, in Yeshua, through Isaiah 53. The Jewish community, uh, what's developed over the years, is sort of an alternative interpretation of that chapter, of that prophecy. And like you said, um, the the primary recommendation now, or, or the primary suggestion now, is that the servant of Isaiah 53 is not talking about the individual Messiah, but that it's talking about the nation of Israel. Interesting. And this really became popular in the Middle Ages. 
uh, and there were three really prominent rabbinic voices that began to suggest and, and push this interpretation. Uh, one was Radak, another was Ibn Ezra, and then the third was Rashi. And Rashi mm -hmm. is, I mean, he is uh, uh, appealed to by the religious Jewish community as an authoritative voice, even to this day. I mean, right. very, very um, prolific commentator on the Old Testament and mm -hmm. on Jewish life and Jewish interpretation of, uh, of the Torah, of the prophets, of the writings and, and tradition and all of that. So there's, there's like, you know, different suggestions on, on uh, why this became the, the prevalent interpretation of Isaiah 53 in that time. One suggestion, some believe that it was actually a reaction to uh, Christian missionaries, Christians coming and bringing Isaiah 53 to the Jewish community and pointing out how much it sounds like Jesus and how Jesus must be the one who fulfills this. So as a reaction to that, this alternative interpretation was developed that, no, 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 it's talking about not the Messiah, it's talking about Israel. So is it unfounded? Well, yes and no. Uh, there are textual reasons why the uh, the Jewish community and, and leaders in the Jewish community adhere to this to this interpretation. One is with the use of the word eved. Eved mm -hmm. is a Hebrew word, it means servant. And in this section of Isaiah, you know, Isaiah is a, a, an amazing book, um, an right. amazing uh, prophecy. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah have a certain tone and, and a certain, certain focus. Once you hit chapter 40, that tone and that focus changes. You get into a much more hopeful picture and uh, a lot more promises that God gives to Israel uh, in Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 66. And in this section, beginning in Isaiah 42, we have what are called the servant songs of Isaiah. Mm -hmm. The servant songs of Isaiah. So these are Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4, Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 6, Isaiah 50 verses 4 through 7 and Isaiah 52:13 through 53:12. Now when we look at these servant songs, that word eved is used for servant. And sometimes in these chapters the servant is referring to the nation. You know, it's it's valid uh, in Isaiah 41, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 43, 44, 45, and even in Isaiah 48, verse 20, uh, the word servant is used to describe the nation of Israel. In other cases in these chapters, Eved, the word servant, is used to refer to a righteous individual. So once we get to Isaiah 49, verse 3, Isaiah uh, 49, 5 through 7, Isaiah 50, verse 10, now we're looking at the, the use of the word servant as describing this righteous individual who mm -hmm. we you know, later realize is the Messiah. Now, in some, some cases, in some of the verses, uh, it's unclear who we're talking about. Uh, it, it could be the nation, it could be an individual. Uh, but really, there's only like two or three verses in the whole section, uh, Isaiah 42, 1, Isaiah 44, verses 1 and 2, where we're not totally sure. But what we do see, what we can say with confidence, is that once we get to Isaiah 48, verse 20 and forward, every use of eved, of servant, is focused in on an individual. It's talking about a righteous individual. So once we get to Isaiah chapter 53, 
the fo- Isaiah is focusing more and more. You know, it's almost like, you know, he begins with sort of like a broad view of the servant of the nation. And then he begins to hone in on this one righteous individual who's a member of the nation, who's connected mm-hmm. to the nation. Right. Uh, but he comes into focus more and more. Yeah. I think there is a, there's a few reasons why we can point to the fact that it's an individual, not the entire nation. I mean, how can Israel be cut off for Israel or how could Israel, you know, die for Israel? Right. Right. And, you know, there are a few other reasons why, you know, it kind of doesn't make sense. I I mean, uh, granted, there are uh, certain Hebrew words and verbs that are used in Isaiah 53 in that chapter that are plural um, rather than singular. Um, But it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't detract from the fact that it's talking about an individual. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Nicole, you mentioned how Israel cannot be cut off from the land of the living for the sake of Israel and and even for the other nations. Uh, But another like really strong reason why it's talking about an individual and not the nation uh, is because of how uh, the servant is portrayed. This servant, he's portrayed as being righteous, as being blameless, as not being deserving of the suffering that he's enduring. Well, let's ask a follow-up question to that. And, and honestly, I'm like indebted to Dr. Michael Brown for laying this out. You know, I was able to sit under his tutelage um, and really dig deep into Isaiah 53 uh, a number of years ago. And when we look at how Israel is described in other places in Isaiah, or, or even in other places in the Tanakh, in the other prophets. So if we look in, uh, in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 32, verses 28 through 36, or in Ezekiel, chapter 5, verses 5 through 17, or if we look in, in even other prophets like Hosea the, and Amos, the way that Israel is described is not, a, uh, is not righteous. That's, uh, that's not how um, Israel is described at all. Israel as a nation is uh, being chastised by these prophets because of her sin. You know, that, that's a big reason that God even sends the prophets to begin with. Mm-hmm. He sends the yeah. prophets not just to, you know, foretell what's going to happen in the future. The prophets are sent by God to Israel or to Judah or to a certain tribe or to a certain individual, whoever it is, and they're sent with a purpose of pointing out and calling out the sin of the nation or the tribe or the individual or whoever it is and giving a call to repentance, calling out to that person or that nation to come back to God, to, to turn away from sin and to come back to the Lord. Uh, and in the process, uh, these prophets will, will foretell what's going to happen and what, what is still yet to come in the future. But you know, th- this really speaks to a big part of the principle of prophecy. Uh, God gives prophecy not so that we'll just know what's going to happen in the future, but prophecy is given so that it impacts how we live right now. We'll be right back. difficult times, we know how hard it is to hold on to hope, and we want you to know that Chosen People Ministries is here for you. If you have any prayer requests, our prayer team is standing by to receive them. 
you can submit your request at chosenpeople.com forward slash pray. Again, that's chosenpeople.com forward slash pray. So, Robert, I remember reading in Genesis 3, um, after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned, mm-hmm. uh, God says to Adam and Eve that um, the seed of the woman would be at enmity with the serpent and that um, he will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. Mm. And we see that as a prophecy that Yeshua fulfilled. How does the Jewish community interpret this and how do we know that Yeshua fulfills this? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. As far as how the Jewish community interprets that particular uh, promise, uh, it isn't necessarily given the same kind of weight that um, that it is in the Christian community today. I mean, it's an important passage because it really sort of introduces this you know, it's almost like the first note in a song that begins to build and play throughout the rest of the Torah, the first five books, and, you know, all of Scripture, the prophets, the writings, and ultimately we would believe in the New Testament as well. And it's that passage is considered the uh, the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. Right. It's considered the first yeah. promise from God uh, that he would send this special, unique individual uh, who would come to take care of the sin problem in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at what's going on there, Adam and Eve, like you said, they've just sinned. They've rebelled. They've fallen short. And the, the first thing that they did after they sinned and realized that they had done wrong is they uh, they tried to hide uh, in their guilt, in their shame. Yeah. And I love that this prophecy is given by God himself. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the first one given, Mm -hmm. and it's not given through a prophet or through a mouthpiece. It's it's given directly by God. Right. Um, And and that, and it's a promise made directly from him, Mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty amazing um, because it's not in, you know, there's not visions or, or, you know, awkward sayings. This is God himself promising this and 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 prophesying here uh so that is pretty powerful what when you look at and and begin to sort of dissect the promise that god makes he's describing uh the suffering servant there he's describing uh a servant who's going to have a unique birth uh who's going to enter into the world in a very unique way you know well how can we say that he's speaking to the serpent Mm. And he says that the seed of the woman, right? Now, the seed of the woman, biologically, even back then in the ancient Near East, they understood that the man had the seed part, not the woman. So right away, just in saying that it was the, it would be the seed of the woman, uh, it lets us know that this savior would have unique origins, that he would, mm. he would be born miraculously. Right. And God has a track record of doing this throughout the Old Testament. We see some miraculous conceptions and miraculous births, right? We see yeah. uh, with Abraham and Sarah uh, later on in Genesis, as they in Genesis 18, you know, they are, they are uh, they're old. Abraham's very old, and Sarah is beyond childbearing years, which means that her womb is dead. She cannot bear a child uh, naturally. 
But yet God promises that a year later he would return and she would have a son, Isaac. And sure enough, a year goes by, God visits again, and she has a son, and his name is Isaac. God intervened into a barren place of death and brought life and brought the son of promise, right? And then even later on in Isaiah 7, you know, we have the uh, the famous prophecy about the virgin uh, will conceive and give birth. Uh, and ultimately, when we come to the New Testament, we see that Yeshua, Jesus, was miraculously conceived and uh, in the womb of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he had these unique origins, this unique birth experience. So when, when, when that particular prophecy says the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, what does that actually mean? Yeah, yeah. So what, again, when we begin to like dissect that that prophecy, this is really important because the picture is painted that the seed of the woman, this special, unique individual who has this uh, this special, unique origin and, and miraculous birth, that his uh, a big part of the reason of his coming, of his service, is he would crush the head of the serpent, and in the process, his bru- his heel would be bruised, right? He would suffer in the process of crushing the head of the serpent. Now, in the ancient Near East, in, in the Bible, I mean, we have examples of this, to crush someone's head or to, you know, even uh, remove someone's head, okay? Like you think of King David, when he, uh, when he slayed Goliath, what did he do as, as Goliath's corpse was laying there on the battlefield? He went over, took the blade and chopped his head off. And then, and then showed it to the Philistines. And that is what struck fear into their hearts and caused them to scatter. Why? Because in the ancient Near East, in this you know world, to take someone's head or crush someone's head meant that you were taking all of their life force, all of their power, right? So for the, the Messiah, ultimately in Genesis 3, to crush the head of the serpent means that he is putting a final end to the serpent, the deceiver, the enemy, right? Who crept in and introduced all this chaos uh, into creation uh, as he deceived Eve, right? And, and what's also amazing is that his heel would be bruised as he crushed the head of the serpent. So in the process of gaining victory over the enemy, over sin, over death, he would suffer. And to be wounded on your heel in that world, it was a death sentence, you know, whether whether you were uh, an animal or a human, right? I mean, we even think of like Greek mythology. Um, yeah. Achilles. Uh, Achilles, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, his weak spot was his heel. So to have a bruised heel meant that you would die, that you wouldn't be able to fend for yourself, you wouldn't be able to keep up with the tribe, you wouldn't be able to provide for yourself. It was a death sentence. So ultimately, when we come to the New Testament and we look at the ministry of Jesus, the service of Jesus as the Messiah, we see that a big part of the role of the Messiah here was to suffer, that it was through suffering that he would achieve and obtain the victory.
So Robert, you you know that some people would say that if Yeshua really is the Messiah, then he failed, which is funny because if he failed, he wouldn't be the Messiah. Mm-hmm. But anyways, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and their rationale behind that is that he was supposed to bring peace. And we know that there are themes and certain scriptures that talk about, for example, Nicole read it earlier, Isaiah 9, 7, but I'll read from 6 to 7. Mm -hmm. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace um, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. So... What does Judaism teach regarding the prophecies about what the Messiah will do? Hmm. Yeah, so this is a question or even an objection that we get pretty often, uh, quite frequently, um, uh, when we're talking with Jewish people. And it's valid. I mean, it's a valid question. Like, if if I was Jewish, I would want to know, hey, if he's the Messiah, then why is there no peace? And yeah. and why yeah. is this a, a question? Well, because of what you just read, you know, and, and multiple other passages in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, um, the the coming of the Messiah is uh, is equated with the coming of peace, where Israel's enemies are are put at bay, are are destroyed, and the Messiah establishes his throne in Jerusalem, and he rules and reigns from that throne, and finally everything is set straight, everything is good, uh, right? Everything is restored, and we have peace, we have shalom, everything in its right place. How do we respond to this? I always like to mention that Jesus was Jewish, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus was Jewish. He knew this. He knew very well these uh, these prophecies. He knew the description of the Messiah. He knew what yeah. people were expecting about the Messiah. Yet mm-hmm. he still claimed to be the Messiah. He made that claim, you know, yeah. through his words, through his actions. Yeshua, Jesus made his made this claim. He stood up and read one in the synagogue. <laughs> in the synagogue. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which is which is which is insane to me. I love that. Like he stood up and read a prophecy about himself. It, right, and then just... he says, "This was fulfilled in your presence." Yeah. Right, it's like the ultimate <laughs> mic drop. <laughs> yeah, the ultimate mic drop. <laughs> what would they have dropped back then? Like uh, I don't know. Right, shofar drop. A shofar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know how how could he be aware of these prophecies and and uh, these expectations about the Messiah and these promises about the Messiah? Like this. God said this, this is going to happen, right? So how could he do that and yet still make these claims to be the Messiah? And when he came the first time, he didn't usher in that peace yet. He didn't usher in the the fullness of that, of all those kingdom promises that we see in the Tanakh. So that there must be something more. There must be something more um, that is being left out of the objection. And sure enough, Jesus himself spoke about this um, in in Luke chapter 17 verses 22 through 25. He's talking about the time of the Son of Man, and he makes this statement uh, where he says that first, okay, as he's describing the the day of the Son of Man and the time of the Son of Man, he says first he, the Messiah, must suffer. Hmm. Okay, that's uh, Luke 17, verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things 
and be rejected by his generation. So where does that come from? Where, did Jesus just make that up in that moment? Well, no. No, because again, we look back into the Tanakh. We look back into the Old Testament. And, you know, I, we've talked about a number of these passages already. Uh, but Isaiah 53 is, is a prime example where we see that the Messiah must suffer first. Before you get to the end of chapter 53 in Isaiah, uh, where you know you see the Messiah, you see the rejoicing, you see the uh, the intercession, you see things set straight, you see peace, right? Before you get there, actually the means of, of arriving at that place is through the suffering of the Messiah. You see it in Genesis 3, right? We talked about that. You see it in Zechariah chapter 12. Before this fountain is opened up in Jerusalem that that brings fresh living water uh, to the nation, to the city. Before all of that happens, the Messiah returns. And it's described as such a powerful moment where God is speaking and he says, you will look upon me whom you have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. So the suffering is the prerequisite. The suffering is what's required before we get to the, the fullness of all those promises about peace. Something that both the Jewish community and believers in Jesus share is that we're both longing for this messianic age of peace. So how can we, I guess, reach out or just comfort people who are waiting for it? What can we point to in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, that points to the second coming and what's happening in the future? So let me, let me answer that in two different ways. Uh, first, I think it's incredibly important for us as believers to realize and recognize and walk in this truth that we are citizens of that kingdom. That kingdom of peace that's described that you read about in Isaiah 9, uh, we are citizens of that kingdom. We have a taste of that kingdom even. We have God's presence, His Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. So naturally, uh, we should be walking in the Spirit and, and letting our light shine so that other people can recognize the difference in us, uh, not because of who we are, but because of who the Messiah is and what He's done in our lives. Yeshua said it himself, they'll know us, they'll know that we're his disciples by our love for one another, right? So it's not, you know, how good our Hebrew is or how good our Yiddish is or or what ni nice people we are. It's Or, who, or who's right. Or who's trying right. Trying to win an argument. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's our love, right? Mm. The, the mm. love of God being lived out uh, in our lives and, and being recognized. It's important, you know, to know the scriptures. It's important to do all these things. But the one thing that stands out is the love. The second part of the answer to the question is where can we look in the Tanakh? Where can we look in the Old Testament where we see the second coming, where we see the return of the king, the Messiah? And what comes to my mind is Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. So when you look in, in Ezekiel 37, verse 1 through 14, or, you know, honestly, the whole chapter. But the first 14 verses really describe this end time regathering and rebirth of the nation of Israel. 
and it's split up into two phases. You have a physical regathering of the people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the physical land of Israel, the land of promise. And then that's the first phase. The second phase is a spiritual regeneration of the entire nation. God breathing life, his spirit, into a nation that is you know, described as spiritually uh, dead, but then they are resurrected by this power of God, by the spirit of God. Mm. And then you keep reading, right? We keep reading. We see um, uh, the, the divided kingdom, the 10 tribes in the north, Israel, uh, and the southern tribes, uh, Judah, reunited, right? God mm. is, is bringing things back together. He's restoring his people in the land, okay? Mm, and yeah. this, this is all end time stuff. And then we come to the last section, beginning in verse 24, right? It says this, my servant David. So you think just those few words there, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. I mean, we could we could spend an hour just unpacking that verse and all of those words that are used to describe this individual. He's a servant. He's a descendant of David, right? Uh, he's a king. He's a shepherd. These are all messianic terms. These are Messiah-like terms. Uh, and, you know, I always, I always uh, like to use the analogy of a, um, a lightning rod. I used to live in South Florida, okay? And there are more lightning strikes in Florida than I think anywhere else in the, in the world. Maybe not the world, but in the U.S., okay? Uh, you can fact check me on that, all right? We will. Um, yes, you will. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, some houses down there will have lightning rods on the top of the house because a lightning rod, what does it do? It attracts the electricity so that, you know, rather than it hitting the house, it'll hit the lightning rod and then that's it. It's done, right? It doesn't do damage. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. Yeshua, Jesus, is like the lightning rod. And the lightning, the strikes of lightning are all of these prophecies. And they all find their fullness in the lightning rod, in the one person. So when we think about the king, boom, that's Jesus. The descendant of David, boom, that's Jesus. The shepherd, boom, that's him. Uh, the, the seed of the woman, boom, that's him. The prophet like Moses, boom, that's him, right? The, the line of yeah. the tribe of Judah, boom, that's, that's him, okay? And in Ezekiel 37 here, he's using these multiple words to describe this individual who's there as king over Israel, ushering in his kingdom. Uh, and I'll, I'll just keep reading, right? So Ezekiel 37, 24, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Okay, so this is an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom being ushered in, in fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So to me, when we take all of these things that we've discussed, when we take the, the full picture that's painted of the Messiah in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, 
uh, and we look for, for passages of hope, passages uh, where we can uh, turn to, to see that, yes, this king is coming back and, and things will be set straight. We will know full, complete, perfect peace at some point in the future. And it's coming through Yeshua. And again, when we take the full picture, we understand that he must suffer first, but that even after the suffering, even after he's at that, that lowest place possible in the grave, right? Even beyond that, one day, just as sure as he rose from the dead and ascended into uh, heaven, where he's seated now at the right hand of power, he's coming back to usher in exactly what we just read in Ezekiel 37. Wow. And what's exciting about that is that's one covenant that still has yet to be fulfilled covenant of peace. Mm. So Robert, to, to wrap things up, I guess we just really have one final question. Did Jesus fulfill the Messianic prophecies? I would say yes. I would say yes. I mean, I'm biased, <laughs> but um, it, he's he's fulfilled so many prophecies that we find in the Tanakh in the Old Testament, and uh, we learn about his fulfillment of these prophecies in the New Testament. You know, it's all one united message, uh, and he's fulfilled what need needed to be fulfilled already. He still will fulfill the things that are pending. Bonus question. Mm -hmm. In your expertise, is there a resource or a book that you would suggest to people um, that could help cover some more of this? I mean, we there's tons of messianic prophecies, and we really only talked about three. And you know, we are thinking about dedicating a whole hour hope season to messianic prophecies. If, if a listener wanted to dive deeper into this, what what would you suggest? I would beside scripture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. This I mean this is a very important question too because yeah. there's a ton of resources out there and we need to know like okay, well what's yeah. good? What's uh what's uh, you know, what's legit? What's um Yeah. what's credible? And when it comes to understanding messianic prophecy, what I would recommend right now is a book that was released uh, in 2019. It's called The Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. The Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on, on Chosen People's website as well in our, in our store. Just go to chosenpeople.com slash store. It is an excellent resource, very thorough, over a thousand pages. And if you want to dig deep into some of these prophecies, this is the resource for you. You, you need to get it. You need to have it in your library. I'm sorry. Okay? Just do it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Robert, thank you for joining us. Thank you for breaking down these few out of many messianic prophecies and trying to tackle a beast of a topic in just, I don't even know how long this was, 30, 40 minutes. Uh, we can go on and on and on. I know we, we really could. Thanks, Robert. Yeah. Well, thank you again for having me, uh, Abe and Nicole. I appreciate you both. God bless you. And I'll see you on the radio. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. It is a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth 2,000 years ago. He was born of a virgin, suffered, and died a criminal's death. As we have discussed in this episode, these are only a few of the many reasons why we believe Yeshua is the promised Messiah. And just as he came to pay the price for our sins, Yeshua is coming again. This time, he is coming as the great king who will establish peace on earth, upholding it with justice and righteousness forevermore. For many Jewish people, it is hard to believe that Jesus could ever bring peace to earth because of the church's history of persecuting the chosen people. So next week, we will tackle another challenging question we have received. Does believing in Jesus lead to anti-Semitism? One of our staff members from Israel will be joining us, so we hope you will tune in to hear what he has to say about this important topic. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Our Hope, featuring Chosen People Ministry staff member Robert Walter. This episode was produced by Nicole Vaca and written and edited by Grace Swee. This episode was also brought to you by Dr. Mitch Glazer and Kyron Bautista. I'm Abe Vasquez. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Our Hope. If you like our show and want to know more, check out OurHopePodcast.com or ChosenPeople.com. You can also support our podcast by giving today at OurHopePodcast.com support. See you next time.